Hello, and welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world. Brought to you by the Satellite Applications Catapult. I'm your host, Maggie Adairin-Pocock, and in this series, we'll be discussing some of the incredible and unexpected ways the UK is using space to make huge differences to life on Earth as well as taking a look forward to some of the amazing innovations we can expect for the future. In this episode, I'll be exploring the IPP Common Sensing Initiative and how satellites are informing policy change. I'm joined by Christoph Christian, Sustainable Finance Lead at the Satellite Applications Catapult, Lucy Edge, COO at the Satellite Applications Catapult, and Ina Bjorgo, Director of Satellite Analysis and Applied Research at the United Nations Institute for Training and Research. Back when you could still just jump on a plane and travel the world, if you left the UK and flew for 11 and a half hours to the west of LA, and then, just when you'd got pretty tired of flying, you boarded another plane and flew for another 11 and a half hours towards the southwest, you'd cross the international dateline, jump back a day, and you'd have finally arrived in Fiji. Fiji is just one of a dozen small island development states, each one an archipelago of thousands of islands and atolls. The Pacific Ocean, that looks so blue and big on the map, is full of these nations. In this episode of In Orbit, we're going to introduce you to the negative impacts of climate change, the climate change we're all contributing to, and the havoc it can wreak on these thousands of islands. We're also going to show you how somewhere far above our heads, satellite technology is doing something to help. Christoph, you're the Sustainable Finance Lead and Business Strategy Associate at the Catapult. Working with Fiji, the Solomon Islands and Vanuatu, I guess there's a real sense of urgency for these countries when it comes to the impact of climate change. And it's not something that can simply be left for another day. So what are small island development states? They're really, uh, the developing countries are typically kind of very small populations. And it are these countries that we see are really being faced most with the impacts and effects of climate change today already. They have actually been seeing changes for a couple of years, probably a couple of decades, and they're very much in the kind of front line of what's happening to our environment and our climate today. Kind of other sad fact, if you like, is that these are the countries that contribute least to climate change. They typically emit nearly nothing in terms of greenhouse gas emissions when you compare it to other countries, more developed countries. And it's those countries, though, that are seeing the biggest impact. So there's a kind of big ethical and moral predicament around the kind of polluter paying principle and for developed countries to help these small countries become more resilient around climate change. This is increasingly being acknowledged that small island development states and a lot of other least developed countries need more support from richer countries, both in a kind of practical and and financial sense. And we see this increasingly happening, but there's a big, big way to go still uh, and a lot more that that needs to be done. I guess that the financial barriers must be very complex. They need a lot of money, that's for sure. And there's not enough money coming. This money is just not available. And it's very hard also for these countries to access any funding that is available. Because when it is available, it tends to sit behind a kind of a wall of bureaucracy, which is created by developed countries. It's very hard to apply for this type of finance because it tends to be concessional. So conditions, uh, finance that comes with specific conditions. On the other hand, we see that 
this money that is coming from the kind of more richer developed countries, that these countries are more reluctant to give it away. They want to make sure that this money is spent on climate resilience, that it's spent in an effective way, that there is transparency in how the money is spent. So this means that there's a lot of red tape and administration around how the money is allocated and spent. And these small countries in particular, these developed countries, they don't have or they have much less capacity within the government to understand these processes, navigate this red tape and this bureaucracy, apply for this money and get it implemented, report on it, etc. because it takes so much effort. These are very small countries, they have small populations, which also means they have small governments with small budgets, and they just practical reality of things mean that they don't even have enough people to actually apply for all these projects and the money that they need. And so although there isn't a lot of acknowledgement these countries need more funding, and there's increasingly countries saying, yes, we will give you more money. In practice, we see a very slow improvement or implementation because the way it's being distributed is really not small island state friendly. Aina, you're the director of satellite analysis and applied research at the United Nations Institute for Training and Research. And you spent some time in Fiji back in November 2019. Why is it so hard for people to imagine life on the front line of climate change? When it comes to us living here in Europe, for example, especially myself, I've been really had no concept of what kind of these extremely strong winds are and the precipitation that goes with it when you live often in quite exposed housing. So it's very difficult for us to really grasp this idea that climate change you know, means that people may not be able to live in a place anymore. So for me, lastly, when I was in Fiji, for example, being able to go to the communities, speak to the elders, we sit down with the elders, we learn from them, they showed us around, very kind, and they explained these issues to us. And I think it's extremely important to do that in order to at least try to understand the situations they're facing. To put this into some kind of perspective, in these small island states, nearly a third of the population is living on land less than five metres above sea level which may seem strange to us who only see the sea on the occasional beach holiday. For these nations, 96.5% of the area is ocean, which gives them the classification of big ocean states. It's not surprising to see how vulnerable they are to natural disasters. Climate change makes a regular occurrence. Fiji, Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands are some of the countries which sustain the greatest economic damage from natural disasters every year, making it even harder for them to build the protection they need. In only April of 2020, all three islands suffered severe and widespread destruction as a result of Tropical Cyclone Harold. Christoph, what would it take to build better resilience? So a couple of years ago, Fiji did a study which showed that they would need, I think, around five billion US dollars over the next 10 years to become climate resilient across a whole range of kind of key economic sectors. Now, if you compare this with the, the GDP or the economy of Fiji, it's roughly the same. So Fiji has a, has a GDP of between five and six billion US dollars. So although, you know, you could say, OK, it's the size of the, the, the economy of, of Fiji, but it doesn't mean that the, the government of Fiji is, is collecting this amount of money in tax revenues. It's just the amount of value that's being created. Right. So the tax revenue that they're getting is peanuts compared to what they need. Also, if you then see what's flowing into these countries from international climate finance, which may be a few projects from a couple of millions, sometimes a couple of tens of millions, only very occasionally you would see a kind of bigger project of like 50 million or 100 million. And Fiji is more of a kind of lower middle income country than a developing country. So they have relatively more means compared to other 
countries in the South Pacific, at least. So when you look at Vanuatu and Solomon Islands, where the economy is even smaller and where there's hardly any private sector, really, so even lower tax base that they can rely on, you see that the, the, the means there are not at all proportionate. So they're even lower. And the, the kind of need for investment, if you like, climate resilience is as high, at least, if you like, if not higher in some cases. So they're only billions. Uh, and at the moment, we see they're only getting maybe, let's say, a couple of tens of millions. And how is that broken down? Climate finance can really range from, for example, uh, building a, a seawall to building drainage for agriculture in case of flooding to improving your infrastructure or moving infrastructure or making infrastructure climate resilient by making it more heat resilient or more flood resilient, etc. And these interventions can go from a couple of hundred thousand dollars to a couple of millions of dollars. So you can, for example, put 10 million in building a seawall or building drainage for agriculture. But other projects that are funded a similar amount of money is, is around capacity building or training programs to help countries either improve their policies or improve their certain practices on how they, they manage natural resources or how they maintain certain infrastructure, etc. So even if some of this money may seem like a lot in practice, it's not always that significant. If some of these countries would receive funding for a seawall, it's only one seawall for one village. And they have you know, hundreds of thousands of villages spread across hundreds of islands. They really need structural countrywide solutions. But typically what you see in this project is kind of localized solutions. And, and because they're often run by kind of Western or international aid organizations who charge a lot of money that doesn't necessarily flow directly onto the people who need it most. A lot of money, let's say, is, is kind of lost in the process and not much of it reaches the ground. So there's some really bad statistics on how I think only 10 or 15 percent reach the ground or reach some of these communities uh, from all the climate change funding that's coming through. One really good answer to some of the problems these small island nations are facing might be common sensing. It's a project to help some of the countries that are most affected and at risk of climate change to access and use satellite technology. This way they can plan and protect themselves, though it's not an easy project to introduce. That's not because its ambitions are hard to explain, but because it's a huge collaboration made up of a huge number of partners. There are nations, Fiji, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, but also international bodies like UNITAR and UNOSAT, the Training and Satellite Technology Wing of the UN. There's the Commonwealth Group of Countries that were once part of the British Empire. And then there's the UK Space Agency, the Met Office and the Catapult. And that's not even the full list. Ina, I guess it's this amazing range of organisations coming together that makes this project so unique. So one of the really interesting things about the Common Sensing Project is that we bring partners together with very different expertise. So I do believe very much that it's by bringing together different expertise that we are able to see how we can best support the countries. It is extremely important to take the time to understand the real needs in the countries and then to design both technical solutions and in this case, also training and capacity development in order to feed into the decision-making processes with the overall aim, as I said, to um, help the countries being more successful in, let's say, being awarded climate funds. Lucy, you're the Chief Operating Officer of the Catapult, 
One of the great things about this project is that it offers a unique opportunity for relatively small players in the satellite industry to improve the lives of thousands of people. The Common Sensing Project is a huge collaboration of organisations from governments, SMEs and international organisations like the UN and the Commonwealth. And its focus is on helping three small island nations to work towards a more resilient future with respect to climate change and the challenges associated with it if you're a small island nation. So space technology for use on Earth tends to come in three or four different styles. There's imagery, if you like, so a camera's in space taking images of the ground in, at all different wavelengths, so it may be in the visual or it may be an infrared. And then there's a sort of part B to imagery, which is where the weather information comes from. So we are imaging still, but we're imaging what's in the atmosphere, what the cloud systems look like, what the temperature profile and the water content looks like. And you can also use that to look at pollution levels in the atmosphere as well. Then there are two other very, very useful sets of technology from space which augment this information and that is location information and communications capability. So communications capability is exactly what you think about so it could be to do with using a mobile phone or having bandwidth to your computers that are driving your decision support system and location information is exactly what it says as well. So, you know, the thing that drives our satellite navigation systems in our cars and in our phones, it's exactly that technology. And how can this technology be applied? The data that gets provided as part of the Common Sensing Project is fed into tools that are provided as part of the Common Sensing Project. And those tools are where you get the derived information and the processed information that allows you to make the decisions to look at a very specific example of settlements and locations of towns and villages in regions that are at risk of serious challenges from global warming, common sensing data used through the tools that have been provided can be really, really powerful. Because if you do need to make hard decisions about locations of infrastructure or locations of farms, plantations, or very importantly, locations of where people live and have lived for their whole lives, you really only want to make that decision once. And you want to make that decision really well and be confident that when you ask somebody to uproot their whole life and go somewhere else, that you're asking them to do it for all of the right reasons. So the ambition of common sensing is fairly unique in our sector, what I've seen at least. So we very much want to build resilience in these countries and to empower people in these countries to build their own resilience. We do this by providing the governments in these countries directly with the tools and we build it for them with them. We hand over the entire solution to them, if you like, and train them on how to use and maintain it so they can themselves start to understand the data and technology to understand where the, the kind of highest climate risks are, which villages are exposed most, etc. These tools from a government perspective are particularly useful as they are responsible for, you know, hundreds of thousands of communities that are spread across hundreds of islands. So any kind of centralized tools that help them either monitor what's happening on the ground or help to see what's, what's changing or understand 
where risks are higher, which communities are higher risk is, is particularly useful from an central management mitigation perspective. The tool can also help them kind of prioritize, if you like, the limited or the small amount of resources that are available. The ambition of common sensing is very much that it can attract additional climate finance, not just by helping to prioritize where to deploy it, but also by providing the evidence that can feed directly into some of these climate finance proposals. So if we hand over the solutions to them and we teach them and train them on how to interpret and make use of the decisions on the back of this data, so they can change their policy, so they can know where to invest, which projects to pursue versus other projects, then we think that's quite a powerful and, and kind of empowering way to look at the climate resilience and climate change uh, challenges. So common sensing is very much, but there's a very strong ambition of, of kind of empowerment and ownership building within the, the local governments alongside capacity building so that they can use these tools and data to kind of take ownership again of their own climate change agenda. For me, one of the great strengths of the Common Sensing Project is that each one of those three countries is choosing the way that it wants to address climate change and promote its own resilience programme. And as a result, we have three different solutions. Of course, there are crossovers, but the needs of the people who will be using this technology are what drive the solution. One of the really great things about satellite technology is it's completely borderless. When you're using technology from space, when you're looking down at the earth from space, country boundaries don't matter, borders don't matter, politics doesn't matter. That's really important for climate change because quite clearly climate change is not a country by country problem. It may affect each of us individually in very different ways, but the solutions have to be global and it has to be addressed at a global level. But Lucy, it hasn't always been easy. Countries like Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands are sometimes suspicious of outsiders claiming they can solve their problems. And some would say with good reason. Yeah, there have been a lot of challenges in the Common Sensing Project. I think when you start a project like this, there's always a history of previous aid experiences and... People don't necessarily want anyone from across the other side of the world coming in and trying to explain that they have a solution, which is why I think it's so powerful that the Common Sensing Project is really grounded in very local requirements and local needs. But it took a long time to get to that point. You know, building strong relationships across the world can be really tricky and is something that's been trickier this year because of COVID and the inability to travel. So having People from each country who live in Fiji or Vanuatu or the Solomon Islands who really care about this project is really critical. And also having people from the broader International Project Consortium who are based in the countries to help build those stronger relationships has been absolutely essential. I think the differences in each nation has been a challenge but it's also been an opportunity to really demonstrate the power of the technology and having different needs is a fact of life. So it's been a good way for the Common Sensing Project to really demonstrate that space technology can be this flexible at a local level, even though it's a global product effectively. One of the great benefits of Common Sensing is that we put staff on the ground and into the government system. So we're actually hosted by the government. So that is extremely important because then we can get information to the right place at the right time, if you like. 
And we are working closely with the government so that we can control the flow of information that is needed in order to best feed into the decision-making processes. Now, I first visited two years ago, and it did change the way I thought about things, to see the places and, of course, listen to the elders, but also to discuss with the technical people from various government agencies to see how they organize themselves. There are also uh, many communities know extremely well what is happening, and they are constructing seawalls, etc. So it's not like all communities need to move. But there are, of course, many communities that are still very much prone to successful adaptation. And we need to see how that can best be done. Moving people, of course, is the last resort. But many communities do struggle and have very poor protection. We also need to learn what is needed first and then trying to adapt the technology to the requirements and it's through that and also of course to, to listening to people and governments who really know what's going on we are able to then design solutions that have an impact often this type of solutions for climate change are pushed as super solutions but you know i see them more as not being always used to their full potential so we need to have enough time spent to understand what people need and what data is most useful. And being able to sit with the government over time and learn from them is extremely useful. Christoph, I guess it must be very satisfying to know that this project is collaborating with the communities who are actually being affected. It's been super rewarding to work with people in country to understand their challenges and see that they understand or that they see value in what we're trying to achieve, knowing that we come in there without really knowing much of the context and the challenges, just having an idea and people get it. Although they don't understand technology, they see the value in what we're trying to achieve. So that is super rewarding. We had a lot of kind of warnings about previous projects like this, technology projects, where at the end of the project life cycle, the the organizations that were working on it tend to leave and leave the technology behind with issues that technology sits on the shelf, it's never used. So we are very much trying to ensure that we can sustain and support the tools and data sets that we're building beyond the lifetime of the project and we're trying to really build this into kind of everything we do and i think that's also quite exciting the ambition remains on, on kind of handing over the solution and building as much capacity there as possible but that's obviously been i guess a challenge recently so it may be too early to ask what the future holds for this project but it's hard not to speculate what could these systems and this type of collaboration do for other vulnerable countries across the world as the effects of climate change become more dramatic and widespread? Lucy, what are your thoughts? I see really the limits are only those created by the minds of the people using the technology. And I think they are going to be using what we've started with in this project as a really basic foundation for some quite incredible future activities that allows them to be properly resilient and making some really strong decisions about how their nations can survive these very difficult challenges that are being thrown at them through no fault of their own. And what I really hope is that we in the rest of the world who don't live as close to the challenges of climate change as, say, someone in the Solomon Islands does, will actually start listening to the experiences of the people on the Common Sensing Project when they come back and tell us what good looks like and they tell us how to start living our lives in a better way based on their own very, very real experiences. And that's what I hope the future of the Common Sensing Project is. I guess the first priority at the moment is very much the rollout and handover. 
in these three countries working with our say, primary users and kind of the key ministries we've been working with to date, making sure that they know how to use the tools that they are familiar with, the data, uh, etc., and that they can use it in their, their, their kind of day-to-day -day work. It's also about, as I said, ensuring that the kind of a lot of the data sets and tools are hosted in these countries that there are people trained to maintain them and update them and then going forward i think there's even in this in these countries there's quite a bit of potential for the same tools and data sets to be used by other ministries so there's potential to engage with other types of ministries to teach them on how to use these tools and data sets and or to to even create some tailored tools or data sets for them so that could be one way to expand and i think there's an ambition to expand common sensing as a, a concept, if you like, the core building blocks of it to other countries, I think is particularly valuable for other small island developing states in the South Pacific or in other regions like the Caribbean, for instance, or even the Indian Ocean. There's a couple of small island states that face similar issues that will have similar resource constraints, similar development challenges as well, where the common sensing approach could be useful. So we'll be working with our partners at the Commonwealth and at UNOSAT to explore some other areas or regions where this approach can be hopefully set up more quickly and scaled outwards to other countries. So there's a lot of potential for the future of common sensing. I think we've learned a lot. And I think the division ambition, the approach of common sensing, which combines technical geospatial data, leveraging whatever is openly available side of things together with strong capacity building and ownership building in small island states and developing countries to empower them to take ownership of their own climate change agenda. I think this is very much a scalable concept that we'll be looking to expand to anywhere else that we can. Really. Ina, what about the setup time and making sure that the project has a long-term impact? Capacity development takes time. As, as UNITAR, the UN Institute for Training and Research, we, we have been doing this type of, of work for many, many years. And although this is a three-year project, which is great, capacity development does take time. We are not changing the way things are done immediately, but we need to be patient. Uh, so it takes time to develop these type of capacities to decision-making processes, I would say, at the country level. What we also would like to see is uh, how can we apply this model and these technologies to potentially also other countries in the region. The various tech solutions that we have designed, let's say, will still be there. They'll be running way after project ends. This is uh, built into the project deliverables, let's say. So that gives you sustainability versus a situation where a product ends and, and the system just dies. In the future, these systems could be also used, I would say, to protect infrastructure, to uh, new road constructions, where you construct bridges, influencing even building codes, and therefore so strengthening resilience. We do also, of course, make sure that we ask for the priorities of the countries. We need to make sure that these systems are built around what governments and community leaders are actually needing and, and asking us for. Lucy, hasn't this project raised some interesting possibilities for changing how you and your team work and some unexpected and hopeful futures for all of us? The future of satellite technology is really huge. For the first time in my career, we're really starting to see how using space capabilities actually allows us to genuinely have a much higher quality life on earth and also look after our planet in a much better way and there's the obvious really just useful applications like our satellite navigation but there's also the much more complex challenges in the world like 
good quality supply chains. Supply chains historically have worked very hard and for plenty of good reason, they've worked to make themselves as efficient as possible, to cut the costs down as much as possible. And that's been really successful, but it doesn't have a lot of margin in it. And I think the COVID experience of last year has demonstrated that lack of margin to us. And it's also demonstrated that sometimes supply chain isn't just about the finances. And of course, when we start to look at climate change, having a good quality, resilient supply chain is about much, much more than the price point to the consumer at the end. Some of the challenges that we've come across on Common Sensing have also allowed us to think about how to do things in a better way. When we had to start thinking about how are we going to fly this hardware that needs to be put into a data center in another country, how are we going to deal with that when we can't go with it and plug it in ourselves? And of course, there's a very obvious and and brilliant answer, which is that we actually think about how we would do it and we properly train and share that information with the people in country who are going to be looking after this over the long term anyway. So why not be the people who integrate it first? And that is no different really from a space mission where you have an astronaut in space and if something goes wrong, there's a challenge, there's a slight change of plan. Of course, the people on the ground are working through all of the different options and they share a process and the people in space then go and and carry out that activity. So we sort of used that as a bit of a guiding light for how can we do this on common sensing. And I think we end up with a stronger team on both sides of the story under those circumstances. I love technology and I love to think that aircraft will become much more environmentally friendly and probably faster and all sorts of different transport mechanisms will exist that we don't know about yet. So I don't like to think that the answer to our global challenges is that we don't travel and we don't meet each other and learn each other's cultures. But I do think we'll be far more selective about when we travel and really make the most of the experience when we do. Thank you to Lucy Edge, Christoph Christiansen and Ina Bjorgo for taking the time to talk to us about the Common Sensing Project and to the Satellite Applications Catapult for making this all possible. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you'd like to find out more between episodes about how space is empowering industries, then visit the Catapult website or join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook.